This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, August 30th, 2023. I'm Kyle Kellis. I'm Matthew Moore. Today, a new agreement between the Buffalo National River and the Cherokee Nation. That experience was profound. Uh, you know, a lot of the elders who were there remarked, and you know, as far as the the abundance of plants, but also the uh, the feeling of home away from home, if you will. Plus, with an E. coli outbreak here, we think about the larger issue of food safety. We need to do better um, as a government and industry and consumers, um, you know, to clean up and deal with so many of these problems. And what better way to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the Fort Smith Symphony than new music? So I said, hey, do you mind uh, writing our official 100th anniversary piece? So he's done it. It's called Time Flies. First, the news from NPR. Support for KUAF comes from the Clinton School of Public Service at the University of Arkansas. The Clinton School's Master of Public Service degree balances rigorous policy and data analysis with effective communication and relationship building. Students complete unique field projects from local work in Arkansas communities and across the world. More information at clintonschool.uasys.edu or by calling the Office of Admissions, 501-683-5228. KUAF is supported by its contributing listeners and by the Arkansas Podcast Collaborative, presenting ARCAST Podcast Festival September 20th and 21st, where guests can hear from Arkansas podcasters as well as national experts, including the School of Podcasting and PRX, producers of shows like This American Life, Snap Judgment, and Reveal. More at ArkansasPodcasters.org. This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, August 30th, 2023. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Later today, the upcoming concert celebrating the 100th season of the Fort Smith Symphony and the art exhibition Our Art, Our Region, Our Time at Walton Art Center, which isn't quite as established. This is its third season, but it still packs an artistic punch. We'll learn about both in our second half hour. First we head to the Buffalo National River. Over the last decade, the National Park Service and the Cherokee Nation have been working towards an agreement to allow tribe members to use plants along the river and bring them back to the reservation. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth has more. Along the banks of the Buffalo National River in the Arkansas Ozarks, thick grass and vegetation cover miles of wild oak forest. And for generations, the Cherokee people gathered these plants like river cane, bloodroot, and sage along what is now federally protected land for traditional and medicinal purposes. But when the National Park Service took over the river in 1972, the removal of plants without authorized permission became illegal. Now, more than 50 years later, the Cherokee have formal permission to once again gather those plants just like their ancestors once did. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a big deal. It's one of the first of its kind in the region. That's the Cherokee Nation Secretary of Natural Resources, Chad Harsha. He says the agreement with the Park Service, which was officially signed in 2022, has been in the works since at least 2014. Been negotiating with them, one, trying to identify the areas where we know these plants are likely to grow, and then two, what is a what does a plant gathering agreement framework look like? And so working through some of the, the details of this of this kind of new idea, officially in 2022, that agreement was executed. And um, we've uh, set forth a framework for identifying a, almost like a master permit that the Cherokee Nation would hold. 
Melissa Trinchik is Chief of Resources Stewardship, Science, Interpretation, and Education for the Buffalo National River. And she says the details of the agreement would allow for the Cherokee Nation to designate tribal members who can harvest plants along the nearly 1,000-acre site in the park to take back to the reservation. So that memorandum of agreement provides that step-by-step guidance, and it includes the types of plants and plant parks that can be gathered. Trenchick says an exemption exists for plants that are listed as threatened or endangered on a state or federal registry. The agreement goes on to specify where um, plants can be gathered, and that's based on an evaluation that the park did to say, you know, where are these plants abundant? Where is the best place to gather them to ensure that there is continued uh, propagation of these plants? So far, the tribe has identified 76 different plants along the Buffalo River that tribal members will have permission to gather. Secretary Harsha said some of these plants are used to soothe ailments, for food, or in traditional crafts, and include things like wild indigo, hickory, and wild onion. And then we have a number of different plants that we um, that we utilize in our um, seed bank and our cultural garden. You know, some of these plants are, are, are medicinal um some are food crops like beans and, and corn and, and various varieties. In 2017, members of the tribe's Medicine Keepers group and researchers surveyed the land along the Buffalo River for possible use. Clint Carroll, a professor of ethnic studies at the University of Colorado Boulder and a Cherokee citizen, was part of that survey process. That experience was profound. Uh, you know, a lot of the elders who were there remarked and you know, as far as the, the abundance of plants, but also the uh, the feeling of home away from home, if you will. Um, you know, uh, specifically, uh, one elder said it felt like going back to the homeland. He says while the land along the Buffalo River is not the Cherokee's original homeland, the region has historical significance for the tribe. That the Buffalo National River is actually located on top of former treaty lands that the federal government had uh, designated for, at that time, what was known as the, the Western Cherokee Nation. You know, we reunified in 1839 um, uh, after the Trail of Tears, but um, uh, it was still considered, you know, um, treaty lands at one point. And so it's significant politically as well. Uh, you know, Cherokee people were there uh, in recent history, um, and we continue, of course, to be located you know, our communities um, and within a three-hour, three-and-a-half-hour drive from the park. Uh, So it's got layers of significance uh, for Cherokee people. And Carol says the flora along the river is either the same or similar to what was used in the southeast before forced removal and helped the tribe retain some significant cultural knowledge. But limited access and the effects of climate change over the past two centuries have depleted the abundance of these plants on the 7,000-square-mile reservation in Oklahoma. But he says this agreement offers a path forward. You know, the medicine keepers um, um, are thinking, you know, beyond the reservation uh, borders, and, and, you know, this agreement is an example of that. And so that directly involves younger Cherokees uh, learning with the medicine keepers about these plants and the, the importance of protecting them, of you know, how to use them, how to talk about them in the Cherokee language. Um, you know, all of that is, is a part of these kind of, it's, it's, it's the bigger picture. You know, it's the umbrella under, 
which this this agreement fits. You know, uh, there's no sense in protecting and and gaining access to these lands for gathering plants if younger people aren't going to uh, continue those traditions and and perpetuate that knowledge. This is the third agreement with a federally recognized tribe that the Park Service has entered into. The first was in 2018 with the Tohono O'odham Nation in Arizona, and then in 2019 with the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians and the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Trinchik says these efforts are part of a national push to right historical wrongs and develop more co-stewardship with Native communities on protected lands. You know, the Cherokees specifically, you know, use these plants to sustain their connection to the land and to perpetuate their culture. These places were managed and utilized well before we ever got here. And those traditional ecological knowledge uh, that our tribal partners bring to managing this land uh, is important to us to make sure that we can protect it in the future. She says a 2016 rule change allowed federally recognized tribes to request harvesting of plants within national park boundaries. And she says the Buffalo National River is open to working with all federally recognized tribes with cultural affiliation to the land. They're all encouraged to reach out to us if they have an interest in harvesting plants or plant parts for traditional purposes. Recently, the Cherokee Nation also secured 1,000 acres of land in Adair County, Oklahoma, that the medicine keepers will use to cultivate some of the plants harvested along the buffalo. And Secretary Harsha says all of these efforts are vital to Cherokee identity. And having a, identifying areas where these plants can be collected and, or, or taken back by the Cherokee Nation and propagated for distribution to other other tribal citizens, you know, is, is, is incredibly important to, you know, Cherokee Nation identity and culture. And so it's, it's a great program and happy to see this underway and hopefully expand it over time. Harsha says the tribe has not yet started gathering plants along the buffalo, but says Cherokee Nation and the Park Service are close to finalizing some of those final details and the nation could begin harvesting as early as this fall. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. The 70th annual Cherokee National Holiday Celebration begins tomorrow in and around Tahlequah. New this year, the two-night concert event, Dalal, help me out here. Dalalapalooza. Dalalapalooza, thank you. It's a two-day bluegrass and folk-themed concert. It's going to be at one fire field Friday and Saturday nights from 6 until 10. Artists performing include Hannah Rennell, Johnny Mullinex, our favorite, Kaylin Fay, Monica Taylor, Travis Fight, as well as headliner Arkansas playing on Saturday night. Concert goers encouraged to bring a lawn chair or blanket. The Cherokee National Holiday will also continue to provide a number of virtual elements. So Cherokee citizens who cannot attend the in-person activities can participate in the celebration online at the thecherokeeholiday.com. For people at the celebration, there will be a fishing tournament, an inter-tribal powwow, and traditional games. The Cherokee National Holiday commemorates the signing of the Cherokee Nation Constitution in 1839. I didn't realize it was that old. Mm -hmm. Which reestablished the tribe's government in Indian Territory after forced removal from the Cherokee's original homelands in the southeast. Full schedule of activities and more details can be found at the Facebook page for Cherokee National Holiday. For thousands of years, people in North America relied on one animal. Buffalo was our lodging, our clothing, our food, tools, parts of our ceremonies, 
That's how we survive. The near extinction of the bison, or American buffalo, devastated many indigenous nations. Today, how one nation is bringing them back, on All Things Considered, from NPR News. All Things Considered, later today from 3 to 6, on KUAF Public Radio. This week, the University of Arkansas reported about 100 students had suffered varying levels of illness because of an E. coli outbreak. Bill Marler an attorney based in Seattle who happens to teach about food safety once a year at the U of A, says E. coli is something to be concerned about. In 2018, there was an outbreak linked to romaine lettuce that sickened 148 people, killed five people. And in, with each, in, in, within those outbreaks, there are, you know, literally dozens and dozens and dozens of people who suffer acute kidney failure and, you know, have lifetime complications. That full conversation in about six minutes on today's Ozarks at Large. This Friday, the Lunch Hour Summer Concert Series, sponsored by McDonald's, continues with a performance from Daz and Bree. It's an Emmy-nominated rock and soul woman-fronted duo from Little Rock. Bree and I started as a songwriter production duo. Um, and Bree, you can speak more to yours, but Bree was more like Disney princess, grew up singing with family, and I was more like concert band punk rock emo kid. <laughs> I did grow up on show tunes, so I loved the theater, but also really loved like um, just girl bands. Don't miss their unique performance during the Lunch Hour Summer Concert Series this Friday, September 1st in Fayetteville. Seating is limited for this free event. You need to reserve your tickets now at KUAF.com. You worrying about tomorrow, missing out on today, dwelling on this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. The Crawford County Quorum Court is approving a $10,000 grant for the Alma Public Library. Talk Business and Politics reports the approval came during a special session last night. The grant from the American Library Association had been on hold after one Quorum Court member said he'd been contacted by a constituent worried the library would be beholden to a special interest group wanting certain books in the library. In reality, the grant is solely intended for replacing the library's front doors to bring them into compliance with the Americans with Disabilities Act. The approval of the grant was passed unanimously last night. A new Arkansas law requires all public schools to provide instruction on adoption awareness. Olivia Gardner, Director of Education Policy for Arkansas Advocates for Children and Families, is an expert on K-12 education policy in Arkansas. According to the law, it's supposed to begin with the 2023-2024 school year. Um, then the curricula is supposed to be developed by the State Board of Education. I think that it'll probably start being taught probably more so in the spring just because folks still need some time to really, you know, iron out the kinks and the state board probably needs more time to actually develop the curriculum. Act 637 requires students in grades 6 through 12 to be taught the Adoption Awareness course one hour every school year. Gardner says the law is in response to Arkansas's abortion trigger ban declared over a year ago, immediately following the Dobbs v. Jackson's Women Health decision by the U.S. Supreme Court that overturned Roe v. Wade. And I think this is one of those bills that was an attempt by legislators to try to make things a little bit easier with, with the realities of the situation that's going to happen, unfortunately, for uh, the for families in Arkansas. And the reality of that is that there's just going to be more babies being born in the state of Arkansas. 
Before the abortion ban, Arkansas's birth rate ranked seventh in the nation. Data show more than 3,000 abortions occurred annually in Arkansas in the years preceding the ban. Arkansas also ranked near the bottom for child well-being, according to the annual Annie E. Casey Foundation's Kids Count Data Book. Arkansas schools are not required to teach sex education, and if offered, the coursework must stress abstinence rather than birth control. I do know that Arkansas remains the highest in the nation for in teen births. So I will say that um, that remains highly concerning, and I don't know that that number is likely to change because of dogs. The new course under Act 637 will provide instruction on private and public adoption, statistical data on adoption, abortion, and childbirth, and, quote, reasons adoption is preferable to abortion, end quote. Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders is approving a plan for additional funding for Arkansas's four crisis stabilization units, or CSUs. According to a press release from the Department of Human Services, this plan will fund the CSU's expenses until June 30th next year by directing around $1 million in substance abuse and mental health service administration grants to the program. DHS has asked the CSUs to submit plans for how they will enhance services and collaborate with their local communities in order to become financially independent after July 2024. The Arkansas Department of Environmental Quality is hosting a public hearing tomorrow afternoon in Springdale. The topic is on a proposed permit to allow spreading of industrial waste, water, flocculates, biosolids, and grease on pastures adjacent to Brush Creek and War Eagle River. Both streams flow into Beaver Lake, a regional drinking water supply. The hearing will take place at the Springdale Senior Activity and Wellness Center at 203 Park Street. Agencies supplying blood to hospitals reminding people to give blood in advance of the Labor Day weekend. Danny Cervantes, the executive director of Our Blood Institute, says a three-day weekend can affect the amount of blood available for emergencies. There's patients in the hospital that use blood every day. And whenever you take, you know, holiday season into effect, blood donation is not a top of mind. So we, we do lose ground um, on those on those days and um, for our holidays. So we, we try to do some some extra little in- events that we do leading up into the holiday to, to kind of help us get through that, that three day weekend. This year, OBI is offering incentives, including a Halloween-themed glow-in-the-dark T-shirt, free hot dogs, and tomorrow and Friday, a chance to win 500 pounds of beef from the Beef Council. Cervantes says data shows such incentives do get more blood donations, and about a quarter of donors are first-time blood givers. Ranges anywhere from about 25% to 30%. Um, During the school year, obviously it's higher. It's more like 40% because kids come of age to be able to donate. We go into high schools and colleges, and it's the first time they ever donate. And there's a higher number of those during the school year. But Cervantes says first-time donors don't always turn into frequent donors. The actual number of returning donors is 1.8 times. So if someone gives blood, they only give 1.8 times a year. If everybody, and this is, this is, you know, when you're looking at the numbers like that, it doesn't take very much to make the world a difference. If everybody would give at least, that, that has donated right now and is eligible to donate, it would give at least two times a year. Just two. I mean, that's just moving the, the needle up 0.02% right times a year. We, we would never have issues. Our Blood Institute has centers at 5300 Southview in Fort Smith and 1003 West Main in Russellville. Information about mobile blood drives and appointments can be found at obi.org. The Danville School District will use money from FEMA to construct a safe room at the district's elementary school campus. 
The funds will come from the Building Resilient Infrastructure and Communities Program. The safe room will accommodate more than 1,100 faculty, staff, and students during severe weather and tornadoes. Currently, the Danville School District has no designated protection for students and faculty during severe weather. This is Ozarks at Large. The Arkansas Department of Health continues to investigate an E. coli outbreak that has affected about 100 students at the University of Arkansas. Bill Marler, a food safety attorney who teaches annually at the University of Arkansas School of Law, says there are about 150,000 E. coli cases in the United States every year. Marler has been an advocate for food safety for years and his work in the aftermath of a major E. coli outbreak associated with the Jack in the Box hamburger chain led to reforms that have made E. coli outbreaks in beef almost non-existent. He's featured prominently in the new Netflix documentary Poisoned, and he continues to work across the country discussing food safety. We reached him in his office in Seattle this week to ask about E. coli and those 150,000 annual cases in the United States. Hospitalizes about a third of the people it impacts, and there's about you know 500 to a thousand deaths every year, mostly children, like little kids. Um, you know where 30 years ago what it was was E. coli cases linked to hamburger. You know that has disappeared, and now where we're seeing these E. coli outbreaks occur is usually in leafy greens or you know fresh fruits and vegetables, um, which is you know in part because we're eating more fresh fruits and vegetables, or at least trying to. Um, and, you know, the tragedy of the Jack in the Box case cleaned up the beef industry and made people more well aware of, you know, cooking hamburger uh, thoroughly. So, yeah, I think, unfortunately, we hear about these outbreaks or hear about E. coli every time there's an outbreak. Uh, and, you know, then we think to ourselves, oh, my gosh, there but for the grace of God go I kind of thing. What is it that would make leafy greens or fresh fruits and vegetables more susceptible to E. coli? Well, one is there's no kill step. We don't generally cook fresh fruits and vegetables, uh, and uh, or we do cook some of them, but not all of them. And for leafy greens, you know, nobody cooks, you know, your romaine lettuce, your Caesar salad. So, I mean, it is it comes to you without a kill step, which makes it... And it's grown outside. And even though, you know, it's triple washed, chopped, bagged, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's pathogen free. And so what has really become kind of the focus, I think, of the people who sort of deal with this like I do, you know, the focus is on environmental contamination. And so, you know, what we've been seeing is um, the leafy green industry has tried to do lots of different things to combat this. The one thing they haven't gone is that last mile, which is to deal with environmental contamination that comes from dairy farms and cattle farms and cattle feedlots, which have really been the source of these outbreaks, both in the Salinas Valley and in Yuma over the last decade and a half. Um, 
you know, one of the things that just happened recently, just in the last month, is, is that the Canadian government has uh, essentially banned the importation of romaine lettuce from California unless it's tested for pathogens. And, you know, so, you know, if the company isn't willing to test for pathogens, they can't sell it to Canada. And I think that kind of underscores, you know, I mean, I think we all should feel a little embarrassed that we can't sell our lettuce to Canada. Um, but, you know, I think it underscores the environmental problem that we continue to have and unfortunately probably can, will continue to have until the, you know, EPA, USDA, and FDA get off the sidelines. You mentioned uh, the jack-in-the-box tragedy, which was horrible, and that spurred action. Mm -hmm. I, I would hope it wouldn't take something like that for produce to spur action. Well, you know, I wish I could say that's true. Um, but, you know, in 2006, there was a E. coli outbreak linked to spinach that sickened 205 people, killed five people. Um, in 2018, there was an outbreak linked to romaine lettuce that sickened 148 people, killed five people. And in, with each, in, in, within those outbreaks, there are, you know, literally dozens and dozens and dozens of people who suffer acute kidney failure and, you know, have lifetime complications. Um, you know, uh, people have been watching the documentary on Netflix, Poisoned, over the last you know, month. And, you know, they're stunned, I think, um, by what happened to my client, Stephanie Ingberg. Um, you know, she nearly died from, you know, eating a romaine salad from, you know, Panera. And uh, she has lifelong complications and will likely require a kidney transplant. And so, you know, that's not, you know, that's not something you wish on a, you know, essentially, she was a high school senior, college freshman when that happened. And now that's something she's going to have to deal with the rest of her life. It's going to impact her relationships. Um, she's at high risk of, you know, during pregnancy to, you know, to die during pregnancy because of, you know, her kidney problems. And so, you know, all of that's going to completely upend her life. And, you know, it's a really sad, sad situation. After watching the documentary Poisoned, it's on Netflix, I think anyone who watches it will instantly think, what did I eat in the last couple of hours? I know just <laughs> today, Bill Marler, before you and I talked, I had, uh, you know, a salad that included lettuce. I had a banana. I mean, I had these things. And and we want, all of us want to not even have to think about that part of eating. But I guess maybe we should think a little bit more about what we're eating and where it came from and how safe it is. Yeah, you know, food is a real personal family thing. I mean, we we think about going out to dinner with our friends and Thanksgiving dinner to, you know, argue with our crazy uncle Bob or whatever. You know, we that's just such a huge part of human society is, you know, sharing meals. And so we think about our food and frankly the manufacturers of our food really want us to have, feel that way about food so because we buy more of it. Um, but, you know, we need to do better um, as a government and industry and consumers, um, you know, to clean up and deal with so many of these problems. I mean, um, 
You know, I think it's highly likely that, you know, the outbreak that we're seeing unfold in Arkansas is probably related to, you know, a leafy green or a fresh fruit or vegetable, given the time frame and given the fact that, you know, hamburger is like not likely the source anymore. But, you know, you want people to eat healthy, but, you you know, we really have failed um, as our, you know, both in government and industry um, to do more to, you know, protect consumers uh, who otherwise are just like you, you know, you, you know, you're trying to eat healthy, so you eat a salad and you don't want to wonder if three to four days from now, which is the incubation period, by the way, it's not a day. Mm-hmm. So three or four days from now, if you start to feel like you have, you know, a stomach ache and then, you know, on and on and on, you don't want to worry about that. And you shouldn't have to worry about that. So now I'm thinking, what can I do with my lettuce? I realize you're not a biologist. You are you're a food safety lawyer. <laughs> I, but... play one, I play one on TV. So <laughs> do I wash my lettuce? Do Is there anything that can you know, make me feel better? Yeah. So So I have a tendency to think about things that, you know, people – shouldn't eat or groups of people who shouldn't eat things. So the big risk in foodborne illness cases are the very young, the very old, uh, and people who are immune compromised. Mm. Um, It's really unusual to have an E. coli outbreak um, in a college population because everything else being equal, these are healthy, happy, you know, 18 to 22-year-old kids who have super strong immune systems. So set that aside for a second. But, you know, if you're a pregnant woman, you know, you're a a family with a kid under the age of five, or, you know, you're over the age of 65, uh, or you've been on chemotherapy, radiation, or HIV, um, you need to pay a little bit more attention to, you know, some of the details, like, uh, you you know, cooking things thoroughly, keeping things cold, um, what you want to try to do is knock down the bacterial load, viral load, and you do that by cooking things thoroughly, um, you know, uh, uh, washing your fresh fruits and vegetables. I have a tendency to to recommend people keep things simple, you know, instead of buying, you know, pre-washed chopped bag salad, buy a head of lettuce and wash it yourself. Um, you know, if you're out to dinner and you don't know exactly how that salad's prepared, you know, order, you know, cook broccoli, Mm. (laughs) you know, I mean, you can live without a salad for, you know, a day, you know, go home and wash your salad and eat it tonight. The big risk is for the vulnerable population um, and keeping hot things hot and cold things cold, um, paying attention to the internal temperatures of, you know, uh, meats and, you know, cooking your, your vegetables thoroughly. Um, you know, you can't live in a bubble. You can't live in a bacteria-free environment. But you can do what you can do to reduce the bacterial load so your body mechanisms, your you know, your immune system can do a lot to fight it off. How difficult is it if if there's an E. coli break to trace back to where the origin stems from? That's a great question. Um, the scientists... Uh, the scientific methodologies that they're using today are far, far, far more advanced than when I first started doing this in the Jack in the Box outbreak 30 years ago. Um, you know, when what you're seeing happen kind of in real time in Arkansas is um, 
uh, something that's kind of a post jack-in-the-box phenomenon. Um, e. coli 0157, which is most likely the type of E. coli that's impacting the kids in Arkansas, is a reportable disease in all 50 states. So if someone comes in and a stool culture is done, comes back positive for E. coli 0157, by law, they the the lab, the hospital, the doctors are mandated to report it to state and local health authorities. That isolate of the E. coli is then sent to a state lab, and that state lab extracts the DNA out of that uh, bacterium, and they do what's called whole genome sequencing. So they look at the entire genome of that bacteria, and then as other stool cultures come in, they see whether or not they're a match. And what that tells you is, is that that it's not just you know one E. coli bacteria um, that that is impacting you know, everybody. It is one E. coli bacteria that's impacting everyone. And sometimes, you know, they they are able to find, you know, a food item that tests positive. We have a listeria outbreak going on out here in the Pacific Northwest right now. Uh, six people have gotten sick. Three have died. Mm. They All six of the people tested positive for the exact same whole genome sequence strain of listeria, which is a, another bad pathogen. And they actually were able to isolate that same strain in uh, milkshake machines and milkshake uh, products from a particular restaurant. So there's absolutely no question about how this all played out. Here, you know, in Arkansas, you've got, you know, maybe, you know, a half dozen or more kids that's sick enough to be in the hospital. Those kids have probably had uh, their stool cultures done, whole genome sequence. The health department probably within the next day or so will say, these kids are all a match. That tells you that they ate something that is a common denominator between all of them. Then it's a real question is, is can you figure out what the common denominator is? So that's a long-winded way of saying we have the technology. The real question is, with an incubation period of three to four days, can those kids, can other kids say, oh, I remember eating blank. And if all that kind of comes together, you've got an incredibly strong epidemiological case for that product, that meal, that whatever is the cause of the outbreak. When you are, uh, you know, in front of lawyers to be talking about food safety, what sort of things do you go over? Yeah, well, you know, I get to do that once a year at the at the University of Arkansas, uh, who the law school is has a preeminent uh, food law program and uh, a uh, master's in food law. It really is one of the best and and the first in the United States, and uh, there's there's really no equal. So I get the honor to hang out with these kids, and they're they're all kids to me nowadays. <laughs> but um, you know, I, I the way I look at it is it kind of circles back to your question about like, I just had my salad. What do I need? Why should I have to worry about it? I just think there's a lot of unique opportunities for, you know, legal advocacy to help prevent foodborne illnesses. And, you know, I've spent, you know, my, my wife teases me. I spent a hundred percent of my time, you know, being a lawyer and I spent a hundred percent of my time <laughs> being a food safety advocate, but I really feel like that has been, you know, a way of getting, things accomplished. And, you know, over the last 30 years, we made a lot of progress. And I tell those students, yeah, 
we've made some progress, but we have a lot more to do. So it's being proactive. It's like, let's stop yes. this before a client comes to you. Yeah, yeah. you don't, you don't, hey, look, I, over the course of 30 years, I've taken on every major com- corporation in the world on a food case. Um, you know, there's, you know, people I've represented who've gotten, you know, significant settlements and verdicts, but not one of those people, you know, would ha- rather have that illness. Um, you know, I, rep- I last two years ago in a leafy green case, I represented a two-year-old boy who ate a little bit of his romaine salad from his dad's plate. Dad got a little sick. This kid got deadly sick, uh, suffered a stroke, and he's now six and he cannot walk, he cannot talk, and he can't feed himself, all from eating a romaine lettuce salad. Mm. All right. Well, uh, where can people find out more? Where would you direct them? So um, the best place for good good information is foodsafetynews.com. It's a newspaper. I'm the publisher. I don't tell people what to write. We have four full-time writers. Um, it just uh, celebrated its 14th year in, in uh, publication, and uh, it's a great source for what's going on in food safety. Bill Marlar is a Seattle-based food safety attorney. He teaches a course about food safety law every year, at the University of Arkansas School of Law. We talked earlier this week via Zoom. KUAF and John Brown University present the Votes and Voices panel discussion Saturday, September 7th, 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. This live event takes place at the Simmons Great Hall on the JBU campus. It will include a panel discussion led by KUAF's Kyle Kellums with leaders in political engagement in Northwest Arkansas, followed by a Q&A and a chance to preview the Smithsonian's Voices and Votes exhibit. It's open to the public. For more, search Voices Voices and Votes on Facebook. The Springdale School District's back-to-school rally is going to take place at Arvest Ballpark this year on September 13th. The first 10,000 students, staff members, and family members affiliated with the district will be able to watch that night's game between the Naturals and the Arkansas Travelers for free. That's my kind of back-to-school rally. Yeah, I would go to that rally. <laughs> Heck yeah. Uh, Nats, by the way, have now lost three in a row and are four and a half games out of first place. They face Springfield tonight and tomorrow night. First pitch for both nights at 7.05. Big volleyball matches in Fayetteville tonight and tomorrow night. Number 21, Arkansas, is taking on number one, Wisconsin. Tonight's match is a red out and Thursday is a whiteout. The first two matches of the season drew a combined 2,700 fans to Barnhill. Arkansas's average attendance is almost 1,400 fans, placing the program in the top 20 across the country. So if you really want to stand out in a photo, (laughs) wear white tonight. Uh No, don't. Red out tonight, white out tomorrow. Also tomorrow. JBU's number 20 women's soccer team hosting number 22 Olivet Nazarene. That's tomorrow night in Salem Springs at 7. And the JBU women's cross-country team will be running at Rogers State tomorrow morning. Also tomorrow night, number 10, Arkansas soccer hosts Milwaukee. That match starting at 6.30 in Fayetteville. Every day, you hear lots of news on Ozarks at Large. But have you ever wanted to test your listening skills? Now you can with KOAF's Word Puzzle. It's just like your other favorite daily word games that feature five-letter words and color-based hints. But you might even get a hint from the previous day's Ozarks at Large broadcast. Go to KUAF's website or newsword.org KUAF to start playing daily puzzles now. 
This is Ozarks at Large with me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio, John Jetter, music director, conductor of the Fort Smith Symphony. Congratulations on 100 years. Thank you. I've been music director for 100 <laughs> years. Yes, it's our 100th anniversary. And and speaking of, so so we've known, we were just thinking about like when, I think we've known each other for 28 years. Something right? like that, yeah. Because yeah. it's my, this is my beginning, my 28th season. Whew. Okay, so we have, uh, yes, it's the 100th anniversary. We're the oldest orchestra in the state of Arkansas, and uh, we're kicking things off uh, on September 9th, which is a Saturday, and it's our 100th anniversary concert. Uh, We have uh, one of many things we're doing this year, uh, people working with people, is we have a composer in residence who's going to – I wish – I had hoped that Patrick could be with us today, but it just just didn't work out. We'll catch up. We'll catch up. Yeah. So uh, Patrick Conlon, uh, he's a Canadian-American violinist and composer and recording engineer. Uh, He happens to play in the Fort Smith Symphony. He's a director of the Academy of Contemporary Music at the University of Central Oklahoma. Terrific. Really well – multifaceted guy. He's our composer in residence. So I said, hey, do you mind uh, writing our official 100th anniversary piece? So he's done it. It's called Time Flies for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. And um, he, uh, it's, it's a really cool piece. Um, it reminds me of the music from Interstellar. And, the Christopher Nolan film. Yeah, the yeah. Hans Zimmer music. Yes. And I think he did that because he knows I like film music. So I think it was like, it's a very cool piece. So we open with that. Uh, we have a wonderful uh, pianist, uh, uh, Maxine, Maxime Landau, who will be joining us for the Rachmaninoff Rhapsody on a theme of Paganini, which of course is super famous. Uh, Mr. Landau was our last soloist before the pandemic. In fact, he played... Um, uh, Rhapsody in Blue. I remember it was in March. Well, I say I remember. I don't know. I guess what, what March of 20 or 20? Would that be 20? March 21? Thir- March 13th, 2020 <clears throat> is when we all started yeah. shutting down. And I remember, you know, we had some people who stayed home. We had mm-hmm. still had a good turnout, but there were some people about that. There was this coronavirus thing, mm-hmm. right? So, oh my gosh. So, um, oh, and I'm mentioning that because. We we have I think we have terrific soloists, but um, there are so many soloists out there, and we do relatively few concerts. So generally speaking, I don't have soloists. I don't have return artists that much. Just and and they could be fantastic, but there are just so many people out there. Spread the wealth. Yeah, exactly. But he had such an impact. He he was just so great. Okay, we've got to have him come back. So he is terrific. And if you like the Rachmaninoff, is I mean, he's just going to be great. He has a great quality of you know being able to work uh, work with an orchestra and play, but there's also a really uh, there, he, he's he's kind of he's very independent and free, and it's a real interesting collaboration. It's like we can sort of do our things, and of course we're working together, but we're also independent. And he's just got a great uh, 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 instinct and ability to work with an orchestra, uh, but still very much do his own thing. What I love about this 100th anniversary concert that starts the season is, yes, there's the world premiere of Time Flies. There's the, what we've been talking about, but there's also Bolero. So there's these this very familiar yes. that sort of celebrates 100 years, but then that's right the world premiere that looks forward to the next century. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. So after the Rachmaninoff, we play An American in Paris mm. of Gershwin, mm-hmm. and uh, it's... 
Um, it's, it's, of course, a great piece. Um, we are actually, not to get too nerdy about it, but we are actually performing uh, a relatively new uh, unabridged version. So uh, when An American in Paris was premiered, the uh, conductor, uh, I think at the New York Philharmonic at the time, Walter Damrosch, I think he kind of thought it was a light, well, it's a jazz-inspired piece. Mm -hmm. And he basically said, well, you need to cut X, Y, Z out of the piece. So I don't know, I'm sure Gershwin wasn't happy about it. <laughs> but for various, for whole other historical reasons, those cuts have basically always been in the music. So it's just been in the last few years that it's been restored. So there's about four minutes of music total that people have never heard before that's in it. And also, all the times that we hear An American in Paris, yeah, it sounds like the real An American in Paris, but it's actually um, uh, been orchestrated by other people. So this is a chance to hear Gershwin's uh, original orchestration, which is very similar but uh, there's some there's some differences there. So if someone knows the piece really well, what's going to happen is it's going to sound it sounds like the piece, but every once in a while it's going to sound like we just start improvising right. <laughs> or right. something for a minute. But that fits with the piece. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Itself. Oh, I mean, absolutely. That, there's improvisation. Well, it's very it's yeah. very yeah it's very jazz inspired, and it really is. Uh, one of the great American orchestral pieces. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. It's only been in recent years that uh, orchestras have programmed this on a subscription program. It was almost always relegated to uh, pops concerts, and, that, and that's a whole. Right. That's the problem with the, the snobby or uh, classical music world that we have uh, tried to tear apart many yes. times on this. Yes. Yeah, but it's it's really a great piece and. With this added music that's in there, the, the, the cuts were basically uh, when material was developed. The cuts were the things that made the piece more, quote unquote, like a symphonic work by like a Richard Strauss or someone like that. So instead of just a bunch of really cool melodies. So we're doing that and ending with Bolero. Which is a well, I mean, it's just instantly recognizable. Oh, absolutely inspiring. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. It's so fun to it's and you know this idea of and it was you know it was Ravel's idea at the beginning. He wrote the melody and he talked to a friend and, and played it out. It's the the story is he played it out on the piano just like one one finger you know just mm -hmm. pounding out. He goes you know and Ravel said I think this has a real insistent quality to it. So I'm going to write a piece where I just repeat it over and over again. And sure enough, and to think about it, there's no development of the material. It's just handed off to different uh, instrumental groups or solos, and it just has that hypnotic quality. It just keeps going and going and going. I think of it, and I'm, I'm at risk here of sounding ignorant, but I think of it as a sort of a precursor to some of my favorite Philip Glass music. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's that sort of... Exactly. That same, yeah, I mean, it's sort of minimalism, yeah. a few ideas yeah. that just keep coming back, a rhythm that... Never right. changes the um, yeah. I think the snare drum that we mm -hmm. hear, I think that's played that rhythm. I think it's like a hundred and seventy times. Mm. Yeah, just sets it up. Couldn't couldn't be couldn't be simpler in some ways. And I think that's what makes a piece so cool. All right, so it's uh, this is the concert. I mean, the whole season is about the hundredth yeah, anniversary, but this is the this is it the centennial yeah. concert. This is a centennial concert. So. Uh, as always, the last few uh, seasons, there is, for uh, the audience, uh, there is an after party that takes place across the street at the Bakery District. However, uh, also at the Bakery District in the collection room is our big celebration event. It's a big dinner, and uh, all, we have uh, the Cool Cats Jazz Quartet performing there. 
uh, our Fort Smith Symphony String Quartet performing and our new Bluegrass Live uh, yeah. Bluegrass group. And it's basically our big we, – we're calling it a celebration event. We called it a gala for a little while, but it's not really – it's like a – you can imagine sort of a casual gala uh, it's not a, a fundraiser, really. You know, a lot of people go to these things, and there's the silent auction and the Call auction. It, yeah. Nearby. yeah, yeah. And uh, it's really just a chance to celebrate. Excellent. So that's, yeah. This is all happening September 9th. That's right. So you can uh, go uh, on to fortsmith70.org and get concert tickets. You can also get tickets to the event. And uh, it's kind of uh, it's kind of a... I don't want to say the event has a disco feel, although although there are mirror balls, but it's kind of uh, ravish a little bit with mm-hmm. colors. I think we have lighted tables, and I mean, if people want to, um, you know, and of course there's great food and beverage, right? And uh, yeah, I and mean, it's right after the concert. The concert is um, it's 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 not short, but we're gonna have we're gonna have kind of a shortish intermission, which mm-hmm. is basically time to move the piano on and off stage, right? And we'll go straight through, and then you literally go walk across the street to the bakery district, and the event is right there. What a fun night. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Website? FortSmithSymphony.org. John Jetter, thank you so much. Thank you. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, a major wind farm is looking to set up shop in Carroll County. But a group of concerned citizens are hoping to put a halt to the process. I think we're looking at all options. We're looking at the possibility of of litigation. We're looking at make sure the scout meets all their requirements and make sure that they provide the the, uh, proper analysis of, for example, um, taking of, of migratory birds. An update on the Scout Clean Energy Project tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. 91.3 KUAF. Before we go today, a reminder that the third annual exhibition, Our Art, Our Region, Our Time, at Walton Art Center, opens to the public Friday evening. The works this year come from 67 different artists from 20 different cities, from Bella Vista to Van Buren. Kathy Thompson, a Fayetteville-based artist, is again curating, though she would rather use a different kind of title. Let's say she's... Someone who wants people in our area to see the art that's here. This third iteration of the Regional Art Exhibition is the same as the first two. Artists of any experience level, any age, or working in any medium submitted their works for possible inclusion during the summer months. It's so interesting because if you feel like you have art that you make or that you're proud of or you would like to enter, then you can enter it. A lot of people enter it and they don't get in. A lot of people enter it and they do. So it, and every year some people enter it and they don't get in and the next year they do get in. But I think the main comment I get about it is just how amazed people are, are over the fact that there's so many artists in this area. And I mean, we've already always known that because that's who we hang out with, but you know, I agree with them. I, my, I'm 
amazed over it. I mean, we have high school students. We have one high school student from Bentonville who entered. She is an amazing drawer. I mean, it just brings tears to my eyes, and I can't wait for her to see her art hanging. The first two exhibitions in this series included painting, photography, pottery, collage, jewelry, fabric, and more. Kathy Thompson says the thrill is watching the entries get submitted. The challenges? Selecting only the amount of art that can fit into the Joy Pratt Markham Gallery at Walton Art Center and then coordinating the work in the gallery. It's a challenge to hang because there's a lot of it. But when you get it hung and look at it, I just stand back and go, oh, my gosh, this is beautiful. And it, it really is. This year, it's a beautiful show. Public reception is Friday night, and the exhibition remains up through Sunday, October 29th. And the gallery schedule is a bit unusual. 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. weekdays, then one hour before any Walton Art Center performance and again open during those performances intermissions. The reason for that is because the Walton Art Center relies on volunteers to keep, you know, there aren't volunteers in the gallery when you're looking at it, but there are volunteers at the door who let, you know, people in. And it's open. That's when it's open from 10 to 2. And you don't need a ticket to the main stage performance, say a Broadway play, to take advantage of the Joy Pratt Markham Gallery's hours. Some of the works are for sale. That's up to the individual artist. And 100% of any sales are directed to that artist. The opening reception for Our Art, Our Region, Our Time is Friday evening from 6 until 8 p.m. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Springdale, and Fallsville. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors today included Daniel Carruth and Jacqueline Froelich. Additional reporting came from the news team at Little Rock Public Radio. Matthew produced the show in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio, too. Kyle, we were just talking about college volleyball just yeah. a moment ago. Today in Lincoln, Nebraska, one of the powerhouse college volleyball schools uh, in Nebraska, they are attempting to break the record for the largest attended women's sporting event. Tonight, okay, um, they're having the match inside Memorial Stadium, which is where they normally play their football games. Uh, listed capacity is eighty-five thousand four hundred and fifty-eight, but has in the past exceeded ninety thousand spectators. Volleyball courts obviously wow. a lot smaller than a football stadium, so you can probably get people down on the floor as well playing uh, Nebraska Omaha. So I love this. I wonder who's going to be on the Big Ten channel. I'd like to watch that, except I'm doing stuff tonight, so I won't. <laughs> we'll, we'll record it and find uh, it. Thanks for listening. I'm Kyle. I'm Matthew. KUAF is supported by its contributing listeners and by the Arkansas Podcast Collaborative, presenting Arcast Podcast Festival September 20th and 21st, where guests can hear from Arkansas podcasters as well as national experts, including the School of Podcasting and PRX, producers of shows like This American Life, Snap Judgment, and Reveal. More at ArkansasPodcasters.org. Walton Arts Center's 10 by 10 art series begins Sunday, September 10th at 7 p.m. with Scythian, Ukraine to Appalachia. This foursome brings Celtic, Eastern European, and Appalachian influences together with technical precision, telling musical stories steeped in various folk traditions. Tickets and information at waltonartscenter.org.